and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in. And what a crazy week we are in the midst of, and we need to all pay great attention to the twists and turns to contextualize and make sense of it all. We have reflected at great length already on the madness of so much political energy being sucked up over the issue of whether this government can fly one flight to Rwanda of these poor sods who come over here on boats before the general election. One flight will do the trick, you know, the photo of it going off, millions cheering, yeah. And by the way, I'm told by some Labour MPs it will lead to a kind of increase in support for the Conservative uh, candidates or MPs in their uh, constituencies, candidates if they're Labour MPs. All political energy sucked up on that. You kind of think, what the heck are we going through when if you look at um, the issues missing at the moment from our politics, which are so clearly more urgently uh, required to be addressed and yet are just on the sidelines, if present at all. I mean, when you think about it, uh, there's a study to be done how at the end of this parliament and this long-serving government, a flight to Rwanda has become the be-all and end-all. Not social care, not the state of uh, the railways and so on. Why? How have we got to this point? It's very interesting. And in a curious way, I recommend this to you. I bet you, you're all going to say he's gone bonkers. Uh, the, the, the state of Britain has turned him insane. But I've been reading Nadine Doris's book um, called, is it The Plot or something? Now, for all the reasons you will have read in the reviews and on Twitter and stuff, uh, it, it it is largely bonkers and strips away uh, the obvious deep flaws of the Johnson uh, period, Um, of course, which, um, incidentally, Rwanda originated from. You know, isn't it interesting that politics moves so quickly? I've mentioned on the podcast before, the announcement about Rwanda was rushed through when Johnson was trying to save his leadership. It was part of, they briefed it naively to the newspapers. It was all part of Save Big Dog in number 10. Uh, He made a big speech on a Friday about flying people to Rwanda. They hadn't thought through all the legal problems and so on. He just wanted to make the announcement to please Tory MPs. But anyway, the Nadine Doris book is quite interesting for various reasons, uh, most of which I won't go into. But one of them is Johnson himself recurs. Uh, She has several on-the-record interviews with Johnson. Now, that in itself is fascinating because it's a reminder about how little he has spoken uh, since he stepped down. That's very unusual. Uh, Now, maybe he was waiting for the COVID inquiry where he uh, spoke for two days last week, hesitantly, tentatively, at times struggling for language, this writer struggling for language. He is not sure of who he is as a public presence when the context is deadly 
serious. He has a public persona for a mood which is light and uh, lends itself to humour, but is hesitant and unsure of his public presence in these contexts. Sure enough, in the Nadine Doris book, uh, where he pops up every now and again, you know, she interviews him in his office, she interviews him in his new posh house, he's bought on the back of one after-dinner speaking fee and so on. Again, she doesn't get that much uh, from him. He appears even in these on-the-record interviews as rather tentative, and the interviews have to be fleshed out with long, adoring reflections from the author, the unreliable narrator, Nadine. But one of the things he points out uh, is that social care has just been dumped. Uh, the famous commitment he made outside number 10 when he pretended to have a plan for social care. He didn't. Uh, But because he said it, two years later, he found that he had to say something about it. So they announced that social care levy, that increase in national insurance. And it was a big moment, a Tory government putting up taxes to pay for a public service. Now, as ever, it was a complete mess. Uh, Sunak didn't want to do it because the NHS was suffering from such a shortfall. It wasn't going to go into social care. It was going to go into the NHS. But nonetheless, there was this thing called the social care levy. And it was potentially a big moment. But of course, it wasn't. It all fell away. And then trust came in reversed the national insurance increase, but still pledged to do the social care through borrowing. That, of course, imploded. She disappeared from uh, number 10, though not the political scene where she, with great chutzpah, continues. And then Sunak, who was completely indifferent, he was opposed to it all along, mystified why Johnson was bothered by social care. That was one thing he kept. Uh, the uh, he, With trust, did not go back to the social care levy. Uh, And then, of course, a few weeks ago, Jeremy Hunt cut national insurance. So Britain is without a social care system of any uh, kind of remotely decent, high-quality provision that is the norm in many other countries. Um, And people just live in fear of slipping into squalor as a result, and um, or alternatively of blowing all the money they've had in a house or whatever to pay for it. Um, It's so interesting, you know, people relish tax cuts and then they find they blow all their money. It's like I find these middle class people, you know, spend a fortune on private school fees and they say, oh, yeah, we must have lower taxes. They spend a fortune because the public services are no good. Anyway, so the social care hasn't been done. And this tells you a lot about Sunak, who, by the way, at the COVID inquiry, I think, looked shot. It's really interesting with prime ministers, you know, uh, watching them. When they arrive in number 10, there is a kind of buoyant self-confidence. They've made it to the very top where so many yearn to go, number 10, and so many fail to their torment. And so they arrive with a certain kind of exuberance and optimism. Oh, yeah, we must be special. And in Sunak's case, really special in that um, 
He lost the leadership contest and still won. He still got in there and became prime minister. Uh, but I've seen it with so many of them. You know, there is a kind of... John Major, when he came in in 1990, he, he had made it, he had, he had wanted it, he had become very ambitious, got there. Theresa May didn't even have to go to the party membership. The crown descended upon her head without having to do very much. And remember, for a long time, uh, way ahead in the opinion polls, 20 points ahead when she called that early election that led to her doom. Gordon Brown, extraordinary. So many prime ministers in waiting, wait and wait and don't get it, and he got it. He got the crown. And in each case, you see them descend into a terrible, terrible, dark place as the impossibility of leading their party, of dealing with the range of crises placed in front of them. And above all, the opinion polls showing them to be deeply unpopular. And boy, does it take their toll. And I think Sunak trying to lead this party, waking up each day to dire opinion poll ratings, personal as well as about his party. He looks at Keir Starmer. He doesn't think he's a formidable figure. And yet Keir Starmer, way ahead in the polls. Um, but... Look at Sunak and what he has chosen to focus on. Rwanda. Forget about social care. The Tories had a proposal. It was flawed, deeply flawed, but better than nothing for uh, Great British Railways, an institution publicly owned. Uh, I mean, it was a mad hybrid, so you'd still have private train companies but it would be a more coordinated system than the current fragmented, costly chaos. They had a bill ready. Sunak wasn't interested. He's just not, he hate, he's not bothered by transport beyond his helicopters. And by the way, I think that is not a flippant comment. I think when you have lived in that milieu, you just can't relate to anything. And he's very much on the right of the Tory party. So he can't stomach the idea of a publicly owned body even though because of the chaos, more and more train companies are becoming publicly owned. And on the opposite side, you have um, Keir Starmer hailing incrementalism, moving very cautiously, even though it is clear uh, that this country is in need and aches for deep, profound change. And although it's proving an electorally successful route, the kind of cautious incrementalism, you do wonder whether when Farage ends up leading reform, now back from the jungle, um, whether their kind of uh, pretend, shallow, change agenda uh, and on the other side, the Greens and even the Lib Dems will begin uh, to uh, make more impact when this incrementalism takes place. Now, why? I understand why Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have to do this because of the bonkers tax and spend pre-election debate in Britain, where Labour has often fallen in traps and lost elections as a result. Which brings me to a kind of final reflection uh, 
if it's okay with you. Now, there's so much going on, not a pledge this week, but there might have to be an emergency podcast later in the week, depending on the whirl of events. We'll all know in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative whether we need to get together again uh, uh, at some point towards the end of the week uh, or whether we can just take a deep breath, pace ourselves and return um, early next week. Uh, And, of course, we're gathering live at King's Place uh, on Monday, uh, December the 18th, for the Christmas special where we're going to be making sense, all of us together, the whole year and looking ahead to the next one. And you can get your tickets uh, via the blurb on this uh, podcast or at the King's Place website, very near King's Cross Station. So greatly accessible. Uh, Hope to see many of you there. Loads of you are coming already, I know. And that's great. And we're going to have some fun. Uh, But there might be an emergency podcast at the end of the week. But here's, here's kind of a thought, which I think at the moment brings together a kind of whirl, the whirl of events. And it it was prompted by a question, actually, from Andrew Stewart, uh, who said this the other day. Hi, Steve, what do you think about the idea of Labour embracing citizens' juries? Most people don't pay attention to politics most of the time. I don't say that to be critical. People have lives to lead, and I can't blame them for relying on a newspaper headline, a snippet of information, some limited personal experience, a political slogan, or a repeated phrase to form their opinions. And perhaps most unhelpful of all, politicians and political commentators increasingly telling us what the people think or how something will go down well in the red wall. Uh, And, yeah, I agree with all of this. So how about it if people knew what their peers, people like them who had been able to delve into an issue, get to grips with nuance and find a solution? In other words, citizens' juries. And he suggests three themes. Uh, Funding the BBC, inheritance, I suppose you mean by that the costs and implications of inheritance tax cuts and rises, and social care. I don't know about those chosen themes. I would certainly choose social care as one of them. I would also choose the NHS and put the two together. Do you remember during COVID? It's one of the things I hope the inquiry gets a grip with. They're being slagged off unfairly uh, about the questioning of Johnson and, and all these Tory commentators saying, uh, you know, this is just all the, all the past, and um, uh, you know they're just trying to get at political leaders. Well, the past should have consequences. It doesn't just disappear, and they are right to challenge. I think the line of questioning is a bit naive at times, but they are right to do it, and it's quite well structured. This inquiry, uh, they began, if you remember, by looking at the broader. Uh, background with the big uh, real terms cuts introduced by Cameron and Osborne in 2010, um, that austerity economic policy. Now they're looking at the personnel, but uh, structure matters too. They're going to come on to that. And I wish they'd asked a bit more about what levers politicians tried to pull and found they had no effect whatsoever, because one of them relates to care homes. And Johnson saying to Hancock and Cummings, saying, come on, yeah, sort out the 
you know, this deaths in care homes. And Hank said, well, I've got no power over that. And then Jeremy Hunt, chair of the health committee, said, we've got to do more. We've got to have a plan for social care and link it to the NHS more explicitly and overtly. Um, and, of course, nothing happened afterwards. Uh, you know, lessons not learnt. One of the themes of my book, uh, Turning Points, uh, is that Britain appears to turn, reach a turning point and then fails to turn. And COVID being an example, as in, and indeed forms one of the chapters. Oh, yeah, on the book, Turning Points. Uh, this is your last week for, if you want a signed sticker to put in a Christmas present uh, to uh, friends, family, uh, email me, steverick14 at icloud.com and um, I will post to you a sticker with a message that you want to send to your friend or relative and sign it. And you could put it in turning points. Uh, one of the times, books of the year, and um, they'll get it still. Uh, and thank you for all many of you who've done. I've been really busy signing these stickers. It's great. It's great. I feel a connection. Um, so I hope those of you who have asked for, for it as a Christmas present will get it uh, in the coming days. I've posted a load. So Britain doesn't turn. Why doesn't it turn? And part of it is, even when politicians know it should turn, they don't think they can uh, get the public with them. Going back to Keir Starmer and his cautious incrementalism, uh, it's partly because, uh, though it's not wholly this, but partly um, that he feels, perhaps with some justification, with the media and with Labour's uh, vote-losing past, there is no space for a wider grown-up discussion about, say, how you fund social care there is no space for a proper grown-up debate about the NHS beyond uttering the word reform and, um, and, and then getting rave reviews from uh, uh, the Times and others. Oh, yeah, yeah, reform. How to get over this uh, now uh, in this brilliant uh, question? We'll come on to other brilliant questions in a minute. Andrew is very generous to voters. I, to be honest, I am less... Uh, generous. Elected politicians can't say this. You can never criticise voters. V voters can spend their lives saying, oh, I hate politicians. They're all awful. They're all mad. They're all corrupt. But you can't, politicians can't say anything. Remember the, that classic case of Gillian Duffy with Gordon Brown caught slagging her off on mic afterwards to his absolute horror. But we can. And I do think it's uh, kind of depressing that some uh, voters with the privilege of having a vote pay no interest to any of this and cannot make the connections between the limits of their lives in so many ways, whether it's cost of living to the quality of public services or whatever, to what is happening in the political world. And therefore, I think citizens' juries is a brilliant idea and uh, other manifestations on the same theme should be introduced. I think politics should be taught as a compulsory uh, subject in schools, as important as math, politics and current affairs, as maths, English, whatever else is kind of part of the syllabus now. But citizens' juries work brilliantly. When uh, some countries have referendums, including Ireland, 
there's a big build-up before the campaign, uh, which includes citizens' juries, and people do become more informed as a result. It remains staggering that that Brexit referendum was held at all, actually, with that simplistic question, with no one clearly defining what form Brexit would take. And no citizens' juries where you explore, for example, what is a trade deal and how does the single market work and how does Britain benefit or not? And you do also explore the uh, arguments about sovereignty, uh, which are complex and interesting. I mean, there are issues around the elected Westminster Parliament being unable to do things. Um, but there are reasons why sovereignty is pulled, and you explore all of that. And so I think, um, and it doesn't cost money, or not very much, uh, citizens' juries, politics and current affairs at schools, a second, as was pledged by David Cameron, a follow-up to the Leveson Part 1 inquiry into the media, uh, because the media is part of the... Uh, problem about what people know and don't know and think. The media mediates. Even now, with the decline in newspapers, there is a potency out there as the Mail and Sun uh, scream and, and the Times and the Telegraph poison on a daily basis. So, yeah, I think it's a really important idea. And, you know, for Labour coming in now, and there's some questions about this coming up, um, with a huge range of challenges. They are going to have to be political teachers and to explain why they will have to do things because what they are saying now, I can tell you, will not be enough uh, in power uh, when uh, and if they form a government next year. Uh, the scale of the challenges are much greater than 97. And they all say that and they all know that. Um, and but they, if they can, there is a way in which you can take voters with you. Um, you see, voters in the end can engage, and when you engage with them, I, I find it really satisfying giving talks where you know we don't all agree, and then you just kind of explore themes. I remember speaking at a fringe meeting at a Conservative Party conference about why public spending should be seen. Uh, if spent well as a virtue. And I, to be honest, I think by the end, a lot of them were in agreement with me, even though they began with the kind of assumption that public spending is kind of sinful and a waste. You know, there are ways of engaging and it's really important. So a brilliant idea. Uh, thank you very much. And now over to your uh, fantastic questions. We've already had one on uh, citizens' juries. And if you want to join in, our never-ending uh, debate, like Bob Dylan's never-ending tour. Uh, it's steverick14 at icloud.com. steverick14 at icloud.com. And that's the email if you want me to send you a sticker for a Turning Points a book Christmas present to friends, families, people you love, people you hate. But do get on with it because you know what the Royal Mail's like now. It's another, it's another thing, you know, sort of praising Margaret Thatcher, praise her as a teacher and as someone with a sense of mission. She was a brilliant political teacher. She had one hell of a sense of mission. But the, you, mo you praise her in more imprecise terms. You then cannot challenge 
what is still a Thatcherite landscape, for example, although she didn't do it, the privatised Royal Mail. It's been a complete disaster. Uh, but I hope you all get your stickers before Christmas, but get them in quickly if you want one. Sean Farrell, now how about this for a cool th analogy? Uh, here's my Paul Weller, Keir Starmer analogy. When Paul Weller broke up the jam in late 1982, he was determined to do something completely different. Forming the Style Council, he was successful at first and fans went along with the group's eclectic blend of soul, jazz, folk and other influences. He even broadened his audience with more female fans while but deliberately trying to piss off what he saw as the herd element of jam fans. He refused to play any jam songs, wore makeup, flirted with gay imagery and indulged in lots of in-jokes. He also alienated other pop stars and people at his record company. But after a few years, the Style Council went into decline. And by 1989, Polydor refused to release their last album. I didn't know that. And Weller was left with no record or publishing deal. Now, you know what uh, Sean Farrell is trying to say here. Uh, uh, is there a danger of Keir Starmer so uh, turning away from what he had claimed to be and what he was part of uh, to uh, embrace this wider field, uh, but in doing so, losing all goodwill at some point to the point where the equivalent of Polydor, which is probably all of us, the electorate, uh, won't uh, put out his albums anymore. Um, and the answer is, Sean, there, there is clearly a risk. One of the arts, we just don't know. We just, it's very hard to see. I mean, at the moment, you cannot argue with a 20-point poll lead. But I think that in government, uh, there is a risk that very quickly a honeymoon phase, there will definitely be a honeymoon. I think people will be so actually excited to see the fall of this extraordinarily uh, dangerous period of rule uh, from 2010, a very long period of rule, which has been in different ways dangerous. The austerity experiment, Brexit, um, the libertarian streak in COVID, the Liz Truss experiment. I mean, we, we, there's been a huge amount. And I think people will, will be excited by a change and there will be a honeymoon. But I think that honeymoon could be over quite quickly unless Keir Starmer rises to these challenges and is seen to do so, and I say, is a teacher. Then I don't think he has to suffer the fate of Paul Weller. Uh, but I think the uh, Style Council analogy comes into play. I didn't know that Style Council fell like that. I just remember, I quite like that cool period, that there is a danger of goodwill going fast, uh, you know, if public services, for example, don't improve quite quickly. Now, I know he's going to say it needs 10 years, and he might get 10 years if Tory support collapses. Uh, but I don't think patience will be in as much supply as it was post-97 amongst voters. And anyway, in that post-97 period, there were some... I mean, Tony Blair's quote was low-lying fruit, but it was pretty... Uh, exciting low-lying fruit for, you know, the minimum wage, social chapter, and, and so on. 
Um, but it's true that the NHS didn't improve very much in the first term. Uh, they had to put up taxes in the second term to bring about the change. And some of the reforms were effective, not all. Some of the reforms were expensive and caused more chaos. Uh, but you're right to raise the possibility of that uh, terrible fate, uh, Sean, of style council. Both Marge Hickman and white van driver Andy Davis noted uh, a Dan Hodges article uh, in the Mail on Sunday and indeed followed up in the Daily Mail. Here is Marge Hickman's uh, uh, observation and uh, Andy had the same. What's your take on Dan Hodges' article regarding the idea that Farage and Johnson will return as the dream ticket? It's quite extraordinary. Well, I agree uh, Marge, I, I think uh, Andy sees it as a real threat uh, and possibility. Um, I see it more as extraordinary, and I can't see it happening. If you think about it, uh, both these people are outside the House of Commons. Nigel Farage has never, ever got into the House of Commons. How would they return? We cannot forget the context of Johnson being out of the Commons, found uh, to have lied to the commons, but it's not as sort of kind of grand as that, therefore lying to all of us about breaking rules in number 10. And he still, in his own mind, hasn't come to terms with it. Uh, you know, so I'm reading Nadine Doris's book, where he's still delusional about the impact of the parties. Farage is interesting. Whenever he comes close to responsibility, he tends to run away from it and do something easy like present GB News or host an LBC phone-in. So, for example, after the 2016 Brexit uh, referendum, uh, what did he do? He resigned the day after from being leader of Brexit, the day after he resigned, uh, in the midst of his greatest triumph, people voting for Brexit. Uh, however, as I said earlier, I think the threat of Farage is... It is real. Now, this is terrifying Tories because it will split the vote. But I think reform could attract some traditional Labour supporters again, as Johnson did with his Brexit pitch in 2019. Uh, he, 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 has, he is a teacher, Farage. I mean, he taught, he, it's, it, it's dangerous. Um, uh, but he's clever in that he's very right-wing. It's like a lot of these things, you know, he, he he left the Tory party when they dumped Thatcher. He, he's a sort of economic Thatcherite to the right of Thatcher with with and with this with the nationalist streak. Very different from Johnson, who had the nationalist streak. Uh, but look at his stuff on social care and sort of believed in big public spending. Farage doesn't. Yet somehow he can pitch to people in poorer constituencies. So, but I cannot see that ticket returning to lead the Tories in the next election. There are so many hurdles for that to happen uh, that I don't think it will. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's fun to speculate about, uh, fun and a kind of nightmare at the same time. On the same sort of related thing, Peter Alden was wondering whether if Jeremy Hunt stands down at the next election, we will have the bizarre situation of a chancellor and a foreign secretary both not standing for election. Uh, 
uh, in that uh, Hunt will uh, be going and Cameron obviously is in the House of Lords. That would be extraordinary to the point where I understand that number 10 are pleading Hunt not to stand down. And if he does, I think he will be replaced. Uh, so you would have an elected MP as Chancellor at the election. The symbolism of Hunt going would be terrible uh, for the Tories. You know, the Chancellor not thinking he can hold his own seat and rather than face defeat, going off uh, and, and just getting on with earning a lot of money, which he's good at, Jeremy Hunt. Uh, so, But it's all part of this strange mix. And as I say, seeing that kind of ghostly figure of Sunak at the COVID inquiry, looking understandably exhausted and drained. It reminds me a bit, there's a thing on YouTube, I refer to it in Turning Points, uh, the, the the book that you're all going to buy for Christmas presents, uh, of Anthony Eden during the Suez crisis when it was all going wrong for him. He gave a televised broadcast and this most telegenic of uh, leaders looked ill and ghostly. He was ill. He wasn't as ill as people he thought he was good was. He lived for many decades. Uh, but it was the stress. It was the stress. And, um, yeah, anyway, uh, now there's a question on the COVID in, uh, uh, inquiry. Uh, thank you, Peter. Over to Fraser Odes. Uh, regarding the COVID inquiry, it's, it's never mentioned that because the vaccine was administered first in the UK, it should be one of the lowest excess death rates, whereas it has the second highest in Western Europe. Nor have I heard much about the thousands of missing WhatsApp messages from Johnson's phone. Do you think Nixon would have fallen if he had had our press on his side? It is. It was mentioned, in fairness. I mean, uh, Johnson was questioned about both, the, uh, the Inquisitor made it absolutely clear that after Italy, Britain had the worst death rate when he was questioning Johnson. And Johnson was asked about his WhatsApp messages. But the wider point is absolutely clear to me uh, that uh, I think it was possible Johnson would have fallen uh, during the chaos of his leadership in relation to the deadly chaos. Uh, but he had the ardent support of the Mail, the Sun and uh, the Telegraph and so on. And it makes a big difference and it influences the way the BBC uh, present uh, these figures. You just have to imagine if Jeremy Corbyn had won and was in charge. I think the newspapers would have uh, destroyed him uh, during COVID, even though I suspect the response of two status figures like Corbyn and McDonnell would have uh, uh, locked down earlier and there would have been fewer deaths. But I think just the whole thing would have been just relentless onslaught and certainly now you wouldn't be getting pious col columns about oh, why are they interrogating Corbyn about this you know they've got better things to do they say destroy the bastard it is part of the Greek chorus um the the the, the papers and still influential uh Mark Holstock says Will history repeat itself next year? 1924 was the year that the Liberal Party collapsed, never to form a majority government again. Will the same happen to the Conservative Party in 2024? It is possible. You speak to Conservative MPs so fearful now of a possible wipeout. And I think it's one of the things, you know, people say about Sunak, oh, yeah, he can go and live in California and spend his millions. Um, but he's a human being. And he will be fearful that one of the scenarios that awaits him, he dares to hope of others, is, is leading his party 
to a slaughter worse than 1997 and closer to 24. And of course, the Liberals never recovered. But what I would say is the Tories will recover. Uh, look at the money they've raised. They've raised more money in the last few months than Labour. And Labour have got businesses queuing up to see them. So the Tories will be back. There will be more books about the strange death of the Tory party, echoing the strange death of Lib liberal England that was wrote, written. Uh, a fantastic book that now everyone copies every few years. The Tory party won't go away. It has enough support in the media and, and, and British politics is still so pitched to the right uh, that it will return. Indeed, Keir Starmer or the briefings about Keir Starmer and Thatcher begin the route back. They'll Even if they're slaughtered, if you have a Labour prime minister saying, well, Thatcher had her virtues, the path is cleared for a return. Um, but they could well be slaughtered. Uh, you know, there's talk of that Canada-style wipeout, which happened to the, their equivalent in Canada in the mid-1990s. All sorts of permutations are in play. Uh, James Gill. It's been a pleasure listening to your podcast for the past couple of years. Oh, thank you. And I've just subscribed to the Patreon edition. Oh, thank you. Yeah, just on that, before we come to your uh, question, subscribe to Patreon and you get bonus podcasts, live events where we all gather together and so on. And I need to say for the next one, at the moment, we're looking at rivalries in uh, politics. We began uh, with uh, looking at Gladstone and Disraeli. And now we're going to leap forward for your bonus in December and explore the rivalry of the Miliband brothers, Ed and David, David and Ed, uh, which was deep, painful for them and for those of us observing it, and quite profound as it reflected different trends in the Labour Party. So that's your bonus podcast. Do subscribe. And how about... Patreon as a Christmas present for friends, family, people you hate, people you love. Anyway, uh, thank you for subscribing, uh, James. Here's your point. I was wondering about your thoughts about the interaction between Labour governments and the Whitehall machine. Uh, and actually, James suggests this for a whole podcast. You're right. It takes a whole podcast. Given that Labour is playing its cards very close to its chest regarding spending commitments amid extreme caution not to lose the election, hitting the ground in Whitehall running, in knowing what levers to pull and how to manage and push delivery across Whitehall policy um, must surely be a Trump card for them. And uh, James mentions, uh, amongst other points, uh, the appointment of Sue Gray. And this is where I think she really is important because... She knows how Whitehall works, what levers to pull, what levers not to pull, uh, where power lies and how to make a difference. And um, it's very interesting. She keeps on c cropping up in Nadine Doris's book. Sorry, I'm becoming obsessed with Nadine Doris's book. But she was clearly a player behind the scenes. Obviously, she, she did the famous Sue Gray report, amongst other things. And I think you're absolutely right. And you're also right that it merits a whole podcast for us all to explore. Um, you can become overwhelmed uh, in Whitehall if you don't know it very well, which is why it's important to have ex experienced people who've been in government before, like Yvette Cooper, in that cabinet room. But I tell you, above all else, it, it is in the end policy that matters um, because Whitehall will deliver if you're absolutely clear what it is you want to implement. Um, 
because people like Tony Benn in his diaries complain about the civil service and so on, but it was actually sort of Harold Wilson stopping Tony Benn from implementing things. So it was political. But if there's a clarity between cabinet minister, number 10, and of course, the mighty treasury, you can get things done. Uh, But if there isn't that clarity and absolute sense of mission, as Thatcher had, things will start getting paralysed very, very quickly. Um, Okay, over to Danny Callaghan. Uh, uh, It's it's, it's a long uh, email about definitions, one of our favourite themes, you know, what does people mean by centrist, moderate and so on. Danny goes on to explore even left and right, whereas you say, I think left and right do offer some form of definition. Uh, but he is right to point out to these internal nuances. Johnson and Truss were fiscally expansionist. Cameron and Osborne were fiscally conservative. Cameron and Osborne were Remainers. Johnson Sunak were Leavers. In foreign policy, Cameron was more of a China dove, Truss a China hawk. Truss a Russia hawk, Farage seemingly more of a dove. The same is true of politicians that usually described as on the left. Does Nicola Sturgeon's support for Scottish independence mean she's more or less left-wing than Ed Miliband? And so on and so forth. Yeah, it's it's really important that um, these labels are not used in a way that implies definitive precision. Um, when actually there are big and important differences between people lumped as centrist, not lumped in, in, in our media, or certainly the BBC hailed as centrist, um, and similarly on the left and right. And I said, I've, old Frost, Lord Frosty Frost, wrote an absurd article for The Telegraph the other day saying during Johnson's first six months in charge, he showed what a true Conservative government could be uh, compared to this left-winger Rishi Sunak. It was, it was school kid stuff because as um, this uh, email from Danny points out, uh, you know, Johnson was a big spender. And Sunak is a fiscal conservative. Uh, it, the, the, these labels need deep exploring to make sense of. Um, talking of which, uh, there's a brilliant email from Josh Alderton explaining the many layers of monetary policy, uh, the constraints imposed by fiscal rules, and the opportunities that can arise from them. Uh, I haven't got time to read it all out, Josh. It's a whole podcast in itself, but he says perhaps most importantly, this is becoming a theme of this podcast. Do you think that Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves can be successful teachers in uh, explaining, getting us beyond the current erroneous mainstream understanding of governments as households where borrowing is almost always bad to a place where borrowing is not always bad and is indeed good where it increases the productive capacity of the economy? And uh, looking forward to seeing the King's Place show on the 18th. See you. Oh, great. See you there, Josh. Um, yeah, well, I agree. Again, it's, it's great how these questions relate to the wider themes of this week's uh, podcast, uh, or maybe part one of this week's podcast, depending on developments. 
Uh, but you are absolutely right. This is the key. Now, Rachel Reeves does sometimes say, you know, part of her fiscal rules is borrowing to invest. And that, of course, is the whole essence of the so-called green recovery uh, program. Uh, but God, are they getting nervous about that. And uh, it was very interesting when Keir Starmer gave a big speech at the Resolution Foundation conference last week. He didn't mention it in his opening speech, uh, the Green Recovery Programme, which in his party conference speech a couple of years ago was the main uh, proposition. And that was immediately picked up on by the editor of The Economist, who was a very good interviewer, actually. So uh, the only way you can get the space to explain these things is by becoming a teacher. So Margaret Thatcher, part of her brilliant teaching, it was wrong, uh, but powerful, was to turn the state into a household or her dad's grocer's shop in Grantham. Um, and that enabled her to argue you couldn't borrow, you could only spend what you earned. But government could. I mean, the classic thing is in 2010, it was so cheap to borrow for capital spending. But the government didn't do it because they didn't believe in that. They were in their uh, austerity experiment. It's, it's more expensive now. But if you can show you're going to get stuff back, like you borrow to buy a house and the house goes up in value. And I mean, there are accessible ways of explaining it. But you've got to be a teacher. Your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, from Mark uh, Hannum this week, I have a question on your most recent podcast. I'm an avid listener, by the way. Oh, that's great to hear. Don't you think it highly likely that rather than necessarily reflecting their true position, the statement from the Rwanda government saying it would have pulled out of the deal if the bill had gone any further probably came from Sunak's instigation? He obviously thinks it helps him appease the right to say he's gone as far as he possibly can. It also seemed to blindside Jenrick. Well, who knows? Who knows what went on uh, when, uh, in the end, the protective shield became Rwanda wanting to stick to international law, not the British government. But in a neat way, that's where we began and where we end. What a contorted position to be in. Deeply depressing one, uh, where, you, where it's Rwanda who are protecting international law. But um, we are where we are, I say all political energy being sucked up by Rwanda, when there is so much that needs urgent focus and attention. But we'll give it focus and attention in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. So we'll do it live at King's Place, Monday, December the 18th. Hope you can make it. Uh, thank you for subscribing to P Patreon. Say great Christmas present. 
and the Millibands will be up soon, the next political rivalries. Thanks so much for your brilliant emails. I'm really sorry not to get to all of them, uh, but if we have a bonus or back next week, more to come. And, yeah, uh, have a good time. Keep running, working, cooking uh, amidst the twists and turns of politics, and there's going to be more uh, before Christmas. Thanks so much. Have a good time. Bye.